0: And there we go. Okay. Uh, Today we are beginning Genesis chapter 37. And uh, last week we were uh, finishing up uh, basically a two-week study on the Taladot of Esau or the count of the generations of Esau. And uh, so we looked at a substantial part of chapter 36 last week. And, uh, and actually, as I mentioned, the, the end of that Taladot is actually verse 1 of chapter 37, and we didn't get quite that far last week. So we'll include that in today's study. But just very quickly, by way of review, uh, what do you remember that we talked about last week in the account of the generations of Esau? Never quite, a, but there
1: were a lot of sons listed, but then the chiefs were listed... But a lot of the chiefs were the,
0: names the, sun, the, names were the same. Okay. But. Okay, so there seemed to be a lot of duplication. What was the significance of the fact that the list of the names of the sons was the same as the list of the names of the chiefs? And they
1: got so hard
0: of they um, Kind of clan, yeah, uh huh. Yeah. So the point of that is that is that he not only had these 12 sons, but they went on to have many sons and many descendants. And so the point of that is how great the nation of Edom is becoming as far as population is concerned. So you have these sons, and then those sons are chiefs. uh, And then it goes on after it mentions the list of chiefs, it gives us a list of what? In Edom. Kings, yeah. So we get a list of kings. So then we begin to see that it's not just this kind of large tribal group, but they're actually becoming sufficiently sophisticated to be identified as a nation with a succession of kings. Now, as we pointed out, it uh, it was not a dynastic kingdom. It wasn't uh, uh, a man's son becomes king in his place, etc., 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 but these were uh, kings from different clans and that sort of thing they were somehow appointed or selected or or seized power or whatever but nevertheless we have this fairly sophisticated development of this fairly sophisticated nation with uh, with uh, chiefs and kings and even regions of chieftains uh, that develops and it also we had a list there uh, besides the list of the descendants of Edom what other list did we have
1: the happiness uh, of Seir which were probably descended I don't know if you concluded this descended uh, from Ishmael okay but I was thinking then that the thing he pointed out was that God blessed them even though they weren't children of the promise mm-hmm. and that that for me I don't I know God does this but I don't quite understand it it seems like he would bless the people who are righteous and not bless the people who are not but he, he is so gracious. He blesses everybody. Yeah. And shows his blessing on these folks who are not in the line of promise, not of the righteous mind. And they had 12 tribes as well and, and lots of land and lots of blessings.
0: Yeah. He causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Or as the case may be this week, the wind bursts to fall on the righteous <laughs> <laughs> and the unrighteous alike. But uh yeah and that's uh, that's one of the great things about our god Uh, he really is about blessing people and and uh so i think about that on a day like today father's day and and of course we think about father's day in the context of the faith and that sort of thing but there are many great fathers out there that aren't christians uh and uh, and yet they're great fathers and their kids love them and they love their kids and all that sort of thing and and all of that's just part of the blessing of God that He extends to all of creation. It's a, it's a it's a wonderful thing, and we see that. What else did we learn last week? Go ahead. Yeah.
1: Was about how we are actually the Gentile nation are actually in the
0: Okay, well, we're, or Edom represents us. Yes, the Edom, yeah, Edom represents the Gentile nations. Yes, so that so that the promises that are extended to Edom actually are extended to us as well, and so we have this tremendous promise uh, that God makes that He is going to include Edom in the Messianic kingdom. And then, as we mentioned last week, as as Karen was saying, we got to the end of the lesson and we saw there in Acts chapter fifteen how how James and his in his uh, in his argument there in Acts chapter 15, uses that passage in Amos that that promises the inclusion of Edom uh, within the Messianic Kingdom. That that James uses that passage to argue his theology, if you will, that all the Gentile nations are to be included in this gospel offer and to be brought into the brought into the church without the encumbrance. Of, of the law and circumcision and all that sort of thing. So it's a wonderful thing to realize that this, that here's this great and powerful nation, and uh, and yet our Messiah and our, our King is greater than that great kingdom, and He's going to subdue it and He's going to bring it into His kingdom and it's going to be part of His kingdom, and that's us, that's you and I, and that's just that's really exciting to think about. Okay, anything else you want to mention from last week before we go on?
1: Where
0: uh, is uh, Seir? is south is southeast of of, uh, of Canaan, yeah. Yeah. So kinda of to the south and east of the end of the Dead Sea. Is that like Jordan today? it would include uh, yes, I believe that includes part of Jordan, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So okay. Uh well, let's uh, go on then, because we have a lot uh, to talk about even today. And uh, let's pick up in uh, verse uh, 1 of chapter 37, and we'll read. And remember, this first verse is the tail end of, uh, of, uh, of the uh, previous Taladot. He says, Now Jacob lived in the land where. Well, let me back up a moment. Let's go back to verse 43. Uh, of the previous chapter. There in the middle of the verse, it says, These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of the Edomites, according to their habitations in the land of their possession. Now, Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. And that's the end of that Talodot. And then it says, These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers, while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was a son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream and related that to his brothers and said, Lo, I've had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Okay, and that's certainly as far as we hope to get today. Uh, but going back first to uh, verse 1 there of chapter 37, which is uh, really, as I said, the tail end of the previous story. And uh, and the thing that's striking about verse 1 of chapter 37 is that it... Uh, it really stands in contrast it 's really put there kind of as a contrast to the to the previous uh, part of the story. We have this tremendous story of of Esau and his descendants and how they have Esau has gone in he 's conquered he 's driven out the the sons of seir out of the out of Mount seir and he 's taken over and as I mentioned this was a highly likely a very highly fortified Uh, a group of people, a highly fortified nation that he goes in and he drives them out. And so that demonstrates, of course, his tremendous uh, military power, if you will. And he goes in and he drives them out. He takes possession of the land. And then and then, as we mentioned uh, in our review, he's blessed by God. He prospers. He has lots of kids and those kids have lots of kids. And they grow into this very sophisticated Uh, Nation uh, organized under chieftains and kings and that sort of thing. And they have these regions uh, of chieftains uh, within the the area of Mount Seir. And so we have this very sophisticated, developed nation. But it makes this little comment uh, at one point uh, there when it's at the end of the list of kings. It says these were all the kings in Edom before there was any king in Israel. And then we go on down and we get to the end of the story. And, and we mentioned last week uh, that the last king in that list of kings was probably the king who was the king over Edom when the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt when, uh, when Moses made his appeal to the Edomites for permission to go through their land. So the point is, most of what we studied last week all happens before Israel even gets out of Egypt. Okay? Okay. And then we get to verse 37, or chapter 37, verse 1, and we just have this simple comment about Jacob. Well, he's just still living there in the land where his father sojourned in the land of Canaan. And it's really like this tremendous contrast because here we have on one side, we have Edom and we have all this prosperity and, this, uh, and, and development and, uh, and sophistication and military power and all that sort of thing. And on the flip side, we have we have Jacob, and he's just kind of still living there in the land of promise, in the land of Canaan. But what has he got to show for it? He's still there. He's still relatively small as far as. The number of people are concerned and we'll find as the story goes forward, uh, as we study more about his time there in Canaan, we're going to find that his family nearly starves. Ultimately, they end up having to flee as refugees to Egypt in order to survive. And they spend 400 years in slavery in Egypt and they come out this kind of ragtag mob of slaves. And they come out and they go to Horeb. And eventually they get organized and become uh, a neophyte or a new nation uh, there. But, but it's this tremendous contrast between the success and the prosperity and the power of Edom. And here we have the people of promise. The people on whom God's hand so clearly rests. And what have they got to show for it? And so here's Jacob still Living in the land and and what's striking to me is how did Esau gain possession of Seir? How did he do that? Now, I know you know this because I told you just a few minutes ago. <laughs> Yeah, he went in and he conquered it. He drove them out, okay? Now, it says that God gave him the land, but the way he did it was he went in and he drove them out, okay? So while he's busy, in fact, when Jacob comes back from Padon Aaron, when he first comes back from Paden Aaron, it appears that Esau's already in the process of doing that. But Jacob comes back and now he lives in Canaan for many years. And you'll notice about Jacob, what does he do to secure the promised land? Esau's over here securing his land, getting his property. What's Jacob doing over here? Nothing. Nothing. Well, it looks like nothing. What is he really doing? He's waiting on God. He's waiting on God. And as he waits, if you will, the unrighteous prosper... They succeed, they triumph, and over here you have the guy who's waiting on the promises of God and things just look like they're going from bad to worse. Now, that's a lesson in the life of faith, isn't it? Because oftentimes when we decide that we're going to walk by faith and we're going to trust God and we're going to follow Him, and then we look to our right and to our left and we say, Well, gee, everybody else is just living for the world and by the world's method and by the world's systems and they're prospering and they're doing great and they're getting everything that I'm trusting God for and I'm getting nothing out of this deal. It's a real temptation at that point, is it? To resort to Esau's methods. But God has called us to wait upon Him. And He said, Those that wait upon Him shall renew their strength and they shall mount up with wings as eagles and they shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. And so Jacob waits patiently on the Lord. In his lifetime, he never sees the promise fulfilled. But we'll talk more about that as we go forward. Well, then we get into the Taladot of of Jacob, which is really the story of Joseph and Judah. And uh, primarily, of course, of of Joseph. And... uh, as we're starting the story, just uh, uh, just a few observations that we that I'd like to make, and uh, one is it's, it's really kind of striking to me. Genesis is 50 chapters long, and 14 chap 13 chapters of it really are just about primarily about Joseph and this whole thing about Joseph going down into Egypt and then bringing his family down into Egypt and everything. So you kind of wonder, what's the big deal? Why is why does the Lord want us to spend so much time focusing on this whole story of Joseph well one thing it's a great story isn't it (laughs) and you know of all the Bible stories uh, and and there are a bunch of them and a lot of them I really really like but I think Joseph probably the story of Joseph is probably uh, my favorite if not one of my favorites it's so full of passion and pathos and and uh, struggle and triumph and forgiveness and, and all these tremendous things that we see in this story. And as, and as you read it, if you, can, if you can kind of suspend as you read through the story of Joseph when you do, if you read through it in a fairly short period of time, if you can kind of suspend what you know is going to happen and just kind of read it like first time through, it's really a powerful story. And it cannot help. Uh, At least for me, it cannot help but move you to tears at some points. It's just so full of just pathos and feeling and emotion and that sort of thing. So but the question is, why does why does God spend so much time to tell us this story? Well, I think one of the things he's doing is you have to remember that the children of Israel have just come out of Egypt. They've just come out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And the question is, how do they look back on this time in Egypt? How do they understand why did God allow us to go through this 400 years? How did we ever end up in Egypt? What was was God doing? Had He forgotten about us? Had Had He abandoned us? What happened? The story of Joseph helps the children of Israel put Egypt in a context. It helps the children of Israel understand to some degree why they were there, how did they get there, and that it was actually the mercy of God that took them there, and that God had a plan and he had a purpose, and that all that time that they were in Egypt, God was working out that purpose and he was working out that plan. And it helps the children of Israel to understand that and put, put that whole period of slavery uh, in some perspective. We need that at times in our lives, don't we? When we go through very difficult times in our lives, Sometimes we just we need time to pause and look back on that time and try to understand what was God doing in my life? Had He just kind of dropped me? Had He forgotten about me? Had He abandoned me? Was He mad at me? Why did I go through that time in my life? And sometimes it helps us to go back and reflect on those things and see... What was God doing? What was God's purpose in that? Sometimes we can't always see that. Uh, fortunately for the children of Israel, they could see God was showing them here. And he does, I think, in our lives, uh, oftentimes show us what he was doing. Uh, as we go through this story, you're going to notice that there are a lot of things you're going to want to know that he's not going to tell you. Okay? So the tendency is to kind of get to things. okay, what's going on here? What's so-and-so thinking? Or what's so-and-so doing here? And, and we don't really know the answers to all those questions. And we won't be able to answer them. But the temptation because of that and because of other things, the temptation when we approach this story is to interpret it using pop psychology. Okay, we just we live in a we live in an era when everybody kind of thinks they're kind of an armchair psychologist, you know. So we kind of sit there and everything that happens, we kind of psychoanalyze what everybody's doing and what everybody's thinking, and we think we can explain all people people all of people's actions and whatever by by our understanding of psychology, no matter how shallow or cheap it is. And so we we tend to employ these pop psychology approaches sometimes when we, when we uh, uh, deal with these stories in Scripture. And it's a real temptation to do this in this story because there's obviously a lot going on. There's a lot of fi- family dynamics going on and that sort of thing. And, and we will take time to think about some of these things, about what's, what are their motivations, what are their feelings, that sort of thing. But we want to be careful as we go through the story not to let pipes, pop psychology be our, our grid by which we interpret the story. There's clearly a purpose for which the story was written. And as the narrator has told the the story, he's told it so that we could understand certain things and see certain things. And we want that to be our grid by which we interpret and understand the story. So we're going to try to do that. And and we we may uh, veer off at times from time to time and kind of consider some of the psychological things that are going on. But I'm certainly not an expert in that area. So uh, I hope we don't go too far afield. Uh, when we do that, but uh, we'll probably do a little bit of that. Another thing I want you to notice as we go through this story is there is beginning with with this story here with Joseph. There's a dramatic change in how God communicates throughout the story of the patriarchs. God has been so intimately, directly involved in his communication with Joseph. Uh, with the patriarchs with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob and we have that right with Abraham right at the very start of the story of Abraham there in chapter 12 where God comes to Abraham and we don't know how he comes to him but God speaks to him and God says okay Abraham I want you to pack your bags and move and he doesn't even tell him where he's says, pack your bag and move and I'll show you where you're going okay and we have this direct communication of God with Abraham and throughout all the way through the story of Abraham we have these repeated encounters Of Abraham and God, where God appears to him or God speaks to him. And then we get into the story of Isaac, and we have the same thing. And God speaks, and not only to, and throughout the course of the story, not only with Abraham, but sometimes even to the pagans. God comes to them in a dream or whatever and speaks directly to them and says, This is what's happening, or this is what I want you to see, or this is what I want you to know. Okay. And then of course we have it with Jacob, and over and over again. Jacob at Bethel, Bethel twice. He encounters God directly. God comes to him even in Paden Aram and speaks to him. And he has these direct encounters with God. Well, now we get to chapter 37, and from chapter 37 through chapter 50, we're going to have one encounter with God. And that's Jacob still. Jacob will have one encounter with God. But other than that, we have no direct encounters. There's none of this God appearing or God speaking or these theophanies or that sort of thing that we've had all the way through the story. Now we've gotten away from the patriarchs and we're in the story of the sons of Jacob. God is no longer speaking or communicating that way. And that doesn't mean God isn't present. And we'll see God's hand woven through this whole story. And it's very clear that Joseph understands that God is doing this stuff, okay? But he understands it by faith. He doesn't understand it because God's coming to him and saying, in most cases, this is what I'm doing. It's that Joseph has ingrained into his heart and into his mind the word of God and the truth of God and the promises of God and the standards of God. And he lives by that knowledge. Now, God does come and speak to him on a couple occasions, but not like we've seen before. How does he speak to Joseph? He speaks to him in dreams. But even here, the dreams are different than they were before. When God spoke to somebody in a dream before, for example, when he spoke to, to Joseph's father, Jacob, at Bethel on the first, uh, the first time, Jacob, uh, Jacob gets to Bethel and he has this dream of the ladder, okay? And he sees God and God actually speaks to him directly, very plainly, and says, this is what's happening, this is what's going on, and this is what I'm going to do, okay? But now we get to these new kind of dreams. And the new kind of dreams that we encounter here in the story of Joseph, it's not God coming and saying very explicitly, okay, this is what I'm going to do, this is what I'm promising, that sort of thing. But he but he gives him these images. And and it's necessary to have some kind of interpretation. We'll discover as we go through the story that it's really necessary for him to have the Spirit of God working in him to help him to understand what these dreams mean. It's a totally different kind of dream than Jacob had at Bethel. Okay? Or that Abraham may have had it at one time or another. So so God has really changed the way he's communicating. And, yes, go ahead. I don't think
1: you may be coming to this. I want to know why that is the case. Do you, do you know why God has changed that method of, of informing his his people. Uh, why did he change from the dealing
0: direct with King Now he's doing it in with Joseph. I I think, I think what we what we experience today is that is what the period that we're entering into now is the norm. The other is the exception. So the question should not be why does God speak the way he speaks now to us. But the question is, why did he speak the way he did them to them? OK, I think that'd be the better question, you know. And, and I think the answer is because the issues were so crucial and were so different that there needed to be an explicit communication that could not be misunderstood. Okay. So that there were times at which he had to speak. For example, when, uh, when Hebrews says, you know, in times past, he spoke through the prophets, etc. Et but now he spoke to us through his son. There came a time for a very special direct revelation. Okay. But now we're past that. And, and the reason why we live, I, I think, the reason why the norm is that, that God speaks more indirectly to us than before is because it requires more faith. You know, it requires more. So in one sense, we look at what what Abraham experiences. And boy, it'd be great to be spiritual like Abraham and have these encounters with God. But really, the greater challenge is to walk by faith and not have, you know, God coming and knocking on my door. And I open the door and God's there and he says, well, Rick, this is what I want you to do today. But rather, I get up in the morning and I seek him in prayer and I spend time in my devotional life and, and I allow the spirit of God to work to illumine my path. And then I walk by faith. So I think it's really a greater challenge and a greater blessing the way we live today. Uh, so uh, let me uh, just check here. Uh, OK, uh, now. Now we get into the story of Joseph and uh, And we're kind of introduced to Joseph and uh, this whole family dynamic that's going on. And then we encounter these dreams in these first uh, 10 verses of this Talodot, beginning in verse 2. And uh, what I want you to notice about this story, before we get to the story of the dreams, is kind of the sequence in which the narrator tells the story. First, you'll notice that he just tells us that when he was young, Uh, When he was 17, he was out there with his brothers pasturing, pasturing the flock. And then again, it emphasizes that he was young. Okay, so twice there in verse two, it mentions to us Joseph's youth or his age, that he was 17 and that he was out there when he was young. Now, some commentators point out that the Hebrew there, where it talks about him being out there with his brothers pasturing the flock, that the, that the Hebrew could be understood there to imply kind of a subservience. In other words, it seems and it seems to me that what the narrator is trying to emphasize here is that, is that initially Joseph is very young and that's stressed to us and that he's out there with his brothers, but he's, he's not in charge. You know, and he's not kind of equal with them, but he's out there really kind of in a position of helping them because he's the youngest okay of the uh, of the ten brothers, of course, Benjamin is still uh, uh, a very young you know infant or or toddler or whatever, so he's back at home. so Joseph is the youngest one who's out there in the fields and and he's helping his brothers and and it mentions specifically the brothers of uh, uh, the sons of Zilpah and Bilhah. The concubines, and I think it seems to me, and it's not not real clear here, but it seems to me the suggestion here is that Joseph, along with the concubine sons, are serving the sons of Leah. As they work out in the field, they're helping. They're the helpers of the sons of Leah as they're out there in the field. There are six sons of Leah. So there are six sons of Leah, the four sons of the concubines, two each. And then there's Joseph. And they're all out there in the fields. And you'll notice that that's kind of uh, how the story progresses, how the narrator tells the story. And he stresses that. And then he mentions uh, at the end of telling us that he's out there helping. He mentions that Joseph does what? Okay. Uh Ginger sees the tattletale there, and there's some question about that. We'll talk about that in just a second here. But he comes with this bad report to his father, and then it mentions, beginning in the next verse, that Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons, because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic. So now you see this mention of this favoritism that Joseph has, or Jacob has towards Joseph. And and the making and the presentation of this this tunic. Okay, now the the idea I I hate to rattle your Sunday school cage here, but this idea of a very colored tunic is kind of up for grabs. We don't really know if that's what's implied there in the Hebrew. Okay, what is implied is it's a it's a very regal garment. It goes all the way to the ankles and all the way to the wrists. It's very unusual. Uh, it's very elaborate or ornamented or multicolored or whatever. But, you know, the image you have from Sunday school and all the pictures you saw in Sunday school of him walking around with this gaudy, you know, robe with stripes of, you know, clashing colors, you know, just put that out of your mind. You know, this was a very beautiful garment with regal implications. Okay. Okay. And that changes the whole dimension of this. You know. So it wasn't just this gaudy present that he got for Christmas. There's some significance to this garment that he gives because he loves his son so much. Now, let me ask you the question. What does Scripture tell us is the reason why Jacob favored Joseph? He was a son of his old age. Now, why did you think that Jacob favored Joseph. Because he was Rachel's son. Okay, we're reading that into the text. It doesn't actually say that, does it? The point that Scripture makes is that he was the son of his old age. In other words, it's his birth order that's significant. It's his birth order is the reason why Jacob favors Joseph. Okay, Now, he may have liked him because he was Rachel's son uh, for that reason too. I don't know, but Scripture doesn't say that. But the point it does make is that it was because it was the son of his old age. Okay?
1: It was because Rachel was barren and for a child. And so, there was a long time.
0: Well, you know, it sounds like a long time. You know how long it was? We know. Six years. Six years, okay. Now, six years, you say, that's a long time for a woman to go. When we compare it against Sarah who was bare for 60 years or however long. It really was not that long of a time. But you have a point there. You know, he's, they've waited for this son and everything. But it's the son of his old age. And it seems like what he's trying to do is he's trying to emphasize the idea that this whole issue of he's the youngest. He's the last one. And it's that whole issue of the law of primogeniture coming up again in the life of Jacob. Okay, well, and so he he... Gives him this garment because he loves him, because he's the uh he's the son of his old age, and he gives him this garment, and then it says his brothers you know they hate him for this, okay, and we go, why would his brothers hate him just because he gets this pretty garment well it's not it's not a pretty garment in the first place, and the second thing is they don't hate him because of that they hate him because his father loved him more than he loved any of the other brothers, okay. And then we get into the story of the dreams. And Jacob has this first dream of the of the sheaves, the binding of the sheaves, and the sheaves bowing down all the sheaves bowing down to his and it's and, and he tells that to his brothers, and his brothers just go, Oh, that's the most wonderful dream. Tell it to us again.
1: <laughs>
0: and so, you know, he... he he picks up on that. He gets that vibration that his, that his brothers love hearing his dreams. So he has another one, right? And and he has this other dream. And this time it's dad, mom and, and, and uh, all the kids, you know. Uh, of course, his mother has passed away at this point. So that's the way Jacob understands the dream and who he refers to when Jacob says, uh, when Jacob says, "Your mother and I, or I and your mother, are going to bow down to you," and he's puzzled about that, he could be he could be referring to Lot Leah, who may be now functioning as as uh, Joseph's mother, or it could be Bilhah, who's functioning as Joseph's mother, or it could just simply be the idea of the dream. Really, is just that the power and the the entire power structure of the family is going to bow down to him, and that could be the meaning of the dream, whether. Jacob understood it correctly or not, but but he has this second dream. And so seeing what a resounding success he had in telling his first dream, he goes and he tells the second dream to his brothers. OK, and they respond the same way with this. Right. Oh, this is great. Hearing these dreams, we this is exciting. What's going to happen here? You know, well, of course, obviously, I'm being facetious. That's not their response at all. Obviously, what this story is trying to do is it's trying to set the context for what's going to happen in the life of Joseph. So that we understand from a human perspective why what happened happened. Of course, from a divine perspective, that's an entirely different story. But what we see at work here in the story of Joseph is the remarkable providence of God that is screwed up as people can be. And as stupid as they act and the lousy decisions that they make in life does not prevent the providence of God from having His way. And God is going to have His way and He's going to accomplish His purposes and He's even going to transform the lives of all these people in spite of the things they say and the things they do and the way they act. Now, concerning Joseph, or Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph, I just—you know—we've talked a lot about this whole issue of favoritism already, and I just want to point this out. Uh, in addition to the things we've said before, that Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph nearly gets Joseph killed, and ends up sending him into slavery and prison. And I wonder if anybody had ever sat down with Jacob, I really don't wonder all that much. If anybody ever sat down with Jacob and said, Jacob, if you keep treating your sons the way you're treating them, you say you love Joseph, do you know what you're doing to him? You're sealing his death warm. Oftentimes we you know we have this distorted view of love, don't we? And we have this we have this view of love and and, and we think we love somebody and we're actually, that love is just consuming them. It's destroying them because it's not the love of God. It's not the love of Christ. It's not true love. And that's what we see in the life of Jacob and Joshua. The other thing I want you to notice is there seems to be a sequence that the narrator is suggesting here. And the sequence seems to be that early on, Joseph just, you know, if if he's kind of, You know the one his father dotes on when he's five or six or seven or eight, and his brothers are in their twenties. You know that's one thing. But when when he's now you know reaching manhood and his and his brothers are men and dad is still doting on him, that's a thing. That's an entirely different thing. And I would suggest to you that what what's what's being hinted at here in the text is is not even hinted at, it's really stated, is an increasing animosity on the part of the brothers. And the reason is because there's an increasing elevation going on of Joseph. We start out the story at the beginning there in verse 2, and he's just one of the guys out there tending the flocks. And he's taking care of the flocks. and and, And as I said, the Hebrew may even imply that he's doing it in this kind of a subservient position. But then he brings back an evil report. Now, in our culture today, the first thing we think of is the guy as a tattletale. Well, okay, can I be honest with you? I was a tattletale. And you, some of you, probably all of you, have been tattletale. The time, but I was a tattletale. And you know there's a lot of justification for being a tattletale. I mean, dad and mom really need to know. They needed to know when my brothers were misbehaving. And if I knew that they were misbehaving, that was... You know, I needed to tell my parents. So, I read that and I go, okay, Joseph, you're being a tattletale. But on the other hand, if the brothers were really doing something that was detrimental to the flock or to the family name, did dad not need to know? So I'm going, to be, I'm going to kind of reserve judgment on that. I tend to kind of think of him as a tattletale, but I'm going to reserve judgment because I can't say for sure that he was wrong. But there is something that strikes me about this is that Joseph sees the way things ought to be done and he wants to see them done that way. And what we're going to find out about Joseph is that actually serves him in good stead when he ends up in Potiphar's house. And when he ends up in prison and then when he ends up at Pharaoh's right hand. Okay. so it's so what I'm suggesting is that is that Jake or Joseph has a conscientiousness about the way things ought to be done and the way people ought to live. And this is actually a good quality in Joseph's life that actually ends up getting him promoted in Potiphar's house and in prison and ultimately to the right hand of the Pharaoh. Okay. And so what I'm wanting to suggest here is that the exact same thing is going on here at home. That when he comes in from the field and he says, Dad, you know, they're not taking care of the sheep the way they ought to be. Dad goes, this kid's pretty smart. And so it just feeds Joseph's favoritism. And when we get to the lesson next week, we're going to notice that Joseph is no longer out in the field tending the sheep with his brothers. But he's the emissary between dad and the brothers. And he gets promoted to the position of emissary. Now, why would that happen? Well, partly because of favoritism, but probably partly because of Joseph's skill and wisdom. So what's happening here is that Joseph's precociousness, if you will, and his wisdom is feeding his father's favoritism. And the two things are working together. And Joseph is being elevated until finally Jacob, who's Oldest son, Reuben, has laid with his concubine and forfeited his position of primogenitor. And Simeon and Levi have acted violently and murdered a whole city and forfeited their position of primogenitor. So Jacob is having to figure out who's going to, who's going to get the scepter in this family. Who's going to be the patriarch when I am gone? And he sends a not-so-subtle sign, uh, sign to the family when he gives to Joseph this regal robe. It's as if to say, you know what I'm really thinking here without actually saying it is my youngest son is going to be the one who gets the scepter. Now, fortunately, God has other plans and God's going to work in another way to, uh, to, uh, to change Jacob's mind. But, but what we see going on here in Jacob is he's still, here he is, he's 108 years old now and he's still struggling with this thing of primogeniture. And he feels like he got a raw deal early in his life and he's never resolved that. All he's gone through and as much as his life has changed and his heart has changed, he still seems to be struggling with this whole idea of primogeniture. And he can't get over it. And I think in our lives, how how many things that have happened to us in our lives in the past are still subtly influencing our decision and our judgments, sometimes even without our knowledge, to our detriment and to the detriment of those that are around us.
1: Yeah, go ahead. And it's obvious he doesn't favorite, favoritism, but it's also possible that that became a favorite because he was the one that did right. And to some degree earned it because these other guys obviously, so far, the we've heard about him is not good. Yeah. And the things we're going to hear about him is not good. Uh it could have been the evil report. It wasn't just that they were lousing the sheep. It could have been they were acting morally. Yes, and yeah, and absolutely. Drinking all that kind of stuff out there. And, and he may have asked Joseph, said, what are they doing out there? Because he trusted Joseph. So it's possible that Joseph gained favor by being righteous.
0: I, I think, yeah, I absolutely think so. And that's why I say I think the two were feeding each other. His His skill, his wisdom, his integrity was... Feeding what was already his father's disposition to, to treat him as a favorite, because we know the primary reason his father treated him as favorite is because he was his his uh, son born in his old age. Well, uh, well a great story also how God used all the circumstances to change Joseph too. You're just getting ahead of the story. Okay. yeah, yeah, it is. Okay. well, uh, obviously we haven't finished this. We are going to go on with our passage next week that we have assigned next week. We'll do that next week, but we'll finish this lesson also because there's still obviously some things we want to talk about this lesson. We need to talk about the dream jet. And so we'll do that as we go on into the story next week and we'll find uh, Joseph being thrown into the pit, etc. So thank you.